Welcome to Therapy is for Everyone. In this podcast, Grace and Vargo will be discussing varying topics about therapy. Listen in and let's remove the stereotype around therapy. In this episode, Grace Ann will discuss how to advocate for yourself in the workplace. First of all, I'm so glad you're here. My name is Grace Ann Vargo. I'm a senior in college and a mental health and therapy advocate. I hope that you find this podcast encouraging and enlightening as we dive deep into how therapy can be helpful in all areas of life. Today, I'm joined by Bobby Ratu, Assistant Professor of Communication at Anderson University, and Dr. Catherine Wyma, Senior Lecturer of English at Anderson University. Can y'all tell us a little bit about yourself and your academic journey in order to get started in this line of work? And we can start with Dr. Weima. Sure. Um, how I got started being a professor. Yeah, kind of how you got started being a professor. Sure. Um, and then just a little bit about yourself. Maybe kind of do you live in the area or like your family, something like that. So I am originally from Powdersville, South Carolina, which is outside of Greenville, and I grew up there, um, and I my undergraduate degree is actually in counseling. Okay. So um, I'm a firm believer in this. Yeah. And uh, my master's is in English, and then I got my PhD at, or I earned my PhD, I should say, <laughs> um, at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. Mm. Yeah, St. Andrews is well known for being the home of golf. Um, they or they like to think of themselves as being the home of golf. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also where the prince went. So mm. William and Kate. Wow. Yes, fellow alums. Oh, um, love the royal family. Yeah, and I I got to shake their hand. But that's stop. <laughs> that's <Yeah>. so cool. <laughs> So they went there for their first um, official event after they got engaged. Mm, that's awesome. There were a lot of people. I guess I shouldn't say I shouldn't say I got to shake their hand because I was, you know, there was lots and lots of people. Right, right. But you at least got to see them. They were up close. <laughs> in person. Right, yes. they were in person. So how did you get from Scotland to little Anderson? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I... I unfortunately did not meet a Scottish man. Mm. Uh, I met my husband, who is from Michigan. Okay. Online. Yeah. Doing eHarmony. That's great. Uh, and that was my next to the last year. So we had an entire year when we were engaged and apart, which mm. was a pain. Wow. Wedding planning from a distance. Um, and so we got married, and we didn't have any firm plan. So he moved from Michigan to South Carolina to help get ready for the wedding. Aw. Yes, he's a winner. And um, we're now we're married happily. And 10 years later, we have two kids. Uh, One is six and one is three. Precious. So sweet. So sweet. And what about you, Bobby? 
So I have a little bit, so obviously, first of all, I am a professor, but I am not truly an academic, I would say. <laughs> um, I'm a guy that is found himself in the world of academics and trying to learn how to navigate that world as an assistant professor. Um, so I'm from the good old Clemson, South Carolina, yeah. born and raised. Um, I went to Clemson twice, uh, did my undergraduate in mathematical sciences, and then my graduate degree was in uh, professional communications. Um, and if I look back at my master's, I kind of wish that I would have probably got did that time period a little bit later mm. because they converted that master's into a doctoral program. And so I pretty oh. much did the work of a doctoral program sure. and just got a master's. Without the title. <laughs> Without the title. Wow, man. Because it was a lot of work. Oh, I can I, imagine. It was a lot of work. Um, but I have had a camera in my hand since I was six years old. Um, that has been my thing. Uh, if you look around in this lab that we're sitting in, you'll see outside tons of cameras. Um, that has been my probably my greatest joy. Um, I went to Clemson undergraduate uh, and worked for Clemson football. Uh, that's how I pay for school. Yeah. And my job at that time was to help to work for football and to record all the practices and then do statistical breakdowns of all the oh. different tendencies of how they play the game. And so then I would take that stuff and give it to the coaches and they would make their plan. Yeah. And um, from there, I just had this great experience and love for the world of just video and photography. And so I was very fortunate to find myself as a journalist. Uh, so I worked local TV for a while, mm -hmm. found myself out west working for the flagship station for Meredith Corp, okay. which is the, um, at the time was the owner of Better Homes and Gardens and mm -hmm. some other stuff. And so I was on the political beat, you know, and just really enjoyed that time there. We were the largest station in the, in, um, the state of Arizona. Mm, and, okay. Um, so I got to do a lot of fun stuff. Yeah. And one day I woke up, I was at the Democratic National Convention in L.A. and looked out of the ocean and I was sitting there by myself and I'm like, this stinks. I'm traveling the world. I'm having a blast and I have no one to share it with. Aww. And so um, I packed my bags, went to grad school and met my wife. And it Aww. was uh, very fortunate. And so we graduated and um, during the recession and got back out, went back into TV because it's just mm -hmm. it was just not a good time to find jobs. And found my way into the business side of television. Hmm. And um, when I came back to this area was because my uh, Sarah was recruited for a manufacturing job. And so okay. I was kind of looking around and went to work for a um, venture capitalist and learned business very quickly. Mm -hmm. And um, at the same time, while I was doing that, my the lady that was leading my graduate committee when I graduated uh, called me up and said, I want to encourage you to teach. I think it'd be something good for you. Um, we could use, you know, people, you know, adjuncts here at Clemson, and I think it'd be a good opportunity for you. Mm -hmm. And so she challenged me, and I was very thankful she challenged me, and I went and learned how to teach. Aww. It was a lot of fun. I taught business writing, um, then I taught technical writing, um, and then I started teaching some of the entrepreneurial uh, business classes, and mm -hmm. which was a lot of fun. And she passed away um, after after a few years and so it's been my goal to kind of live up to the lady that chaired my graduate committees Aww. because she challenged me to do that and I found joy in teaching I did I That's found a great. lot of joy I found a place in my career where 
I have had a lot of uh, professional success. Mm-hmm. And so my goal is always to find a way to um, be able to teach what I know mm-hmm. and learn what I need to know. And mm-hmm. so I enjoy the classroom because it allows you to explain what you know how to do best. And if you can't explain it, then why should you be doing it? Mm-hmm. And that has been so um, very fortunate. Found my way back here and uh, live in Anderson. That's great. And uh, have been great opportunity to join this staff and uh, and teach uh, some of the things I love to teach. Yeah, that's awesome. So I've had you both as professors. I've literally learned some of the greatest things in your classes. Love you both. Um, and so something that y'all share a lot in the classroom is making sure that we as students are taking care of ourselves first as people and then as students. So what made y'all both um, aware of the importance of mental health? Whoa, that's a big question. It is a big question. (laughs) That's huge. (laughs) Um, So my desire to be a professor actually came before my desire, my love of the discipline. Mm. Um, Well, I guess you can, it might be chicken and egg kind of thing, but Mm. um, I was an undergraduate and counseling on my way to law school mm. um, and took the LSAT. I did okay, not well enough to get scholarships. Um, and a friend of mine said, you don't want to be a lawyer. Mm. You don't want to get just a paycheck and then people move out of your life. He said, you want to really pour into people's lives and make an impact and watch them grow. And I was like, hmm. You are so right. <laughs> so um, my, I started thinking, well, who has had the most impact on my own life? And it was my professors. Uh, so I thought, well, maybe I'll be a professor. And then I had actually decided to do a master's in history. Um, and then I switched it to a master's in English. So um, my goal has always been to make an impact, make a difference on my students' lives. Um, and then the academic scholarship pursuit has been secondary. Um, but also, so I, that's that's the one component, but I've seen therapy and counseling help in my own life um, with different situations and in personal friendships um, as well. So I highly highly recommend Jesus and therapy. Yes, I would agree. Um, So I'm going to take you back to my junior year of college. Uh, My parents got divorced Mm -hmm. in the midst of college. Uh, They had been married for 20 some odd years. And, you know, when you grow up and that's your all, then it kind of shakes your world, even if you're an adult. And that semester, um, I almost failed out of Clemson. Uh, I almost lost my scholarship. And I'm going to tell a quick story that kind of illustrates the DNA behind that question. So it was the summer that the Carolina Panthers played at Clemson. It was their inaugural season. And I worked for football. Um, My parents got divorced. I was also asked, because of my my job at athletics, to work for the Carolina Panthers as well because I understood the stadium and – all those things. And so I worked basically nonstop that whole semester. Mm-hmm. And when we got to the end of the semester, Clemson was playing Syracuse. 
um, down in the Gator Bowl. And so we would, we drove, we basically traveled for two weeks before the game. Uh, the first week was to go down and get prepared, and then the second week um, actually do game plan. And so we get down there, and one of the things about athletics is that in order for you to be a part of the team, you have to main a, maintain a certain grade point average mm-hmm. each semester. And if you do not do what they call make grades, you go home. Mm. And so they got my grades. And I'll never forget as long as I live. Um, many of you might know who uh, Billy D is. Um, he at one time was the athletic director at, at AU before they hired Bert. Gotcha. And so uh, Billy D ran Vickery Hall at Clemson, and he was my athletic academic advisor. And he called me into the office with the athletic director down at the Gator Bowl. Oh. I walked in. He said, Bobby, you didn't make grades. You're going home. So I want you to go upstairs, get your bags together. Um, we're not providing you transportation to get home, so you need to oh. go ahead and call your parents. Yikes. Um, my parents were divorced, so who do you call? You know, call mom. Obviously, I'm boohooing and calling mom. Mom's like, you know, of course, chewing me out. And then she's like, I love you. I'm on the way. And so after I get off the phone, um, I walk back into the room. And Billy D had, with the athletic director and everybody in there, um, sitting there. And he had three pieces of paper laying on the desk. Mm -hmm. And there were three job applications. And it was to fast food restaurants there in Clemson. And he knew all the owners of each one of them. And he said, Bobby, uh, you have a choice today. You can either, uh, you can get your degree or you can go work for one of these fine establishments. He's like, I'm not going to judge you which one way you go because I know each one of these owners, but I need you to make a decision right now. And I said, well, I want to get my degree. And he said, okay, let me tell you how you're going to do that. Number one, you're going to come to study hall every day for the rest of your academic career if you're gonna maintain your scholarship. Number two, you're gonna get counseling. Mm. And I'm gonna set that up and you better be at every counseling session for the rest of your academic career at Clemson. And three, you're gonna check in with me. And that told me right there how much he put mental health Mm. as an important part of my maturation process. He knew that my parents were getting divorced and it's not something like you just go run it off. He knew that I was a complex child a complex student and that I needed an outlet to mm-hmm. get through that tough time. And from that point, <clears throat> I've always been a believer in making sure that the mental health inside the classroom, A's and B's are subsequent mm-hmm. to the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. I'm not teaching A's and B's. What I'm teaching is life skills. And that's my goal. And mental health has been a, is a major portion of that. And so I try to do my best to live up to Billy D standards as it, as it relates to how I try to manage a classroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm trying to figure out how I want to ask this question. <laughs> um, as the you that you are right now, um, the older, wiser person that you are, um, what has, um, been some of your experiences with taking care of yourself um, in the professional world? That's a tough one. <laughs> I would love, I, I would be interested to hear from you because I imagine, and I'm not trying to stereotype, but it's got to be different from for females and males. Oh, 100%. Wouldn't you agree? Yep. And so I realized what I would share 
would be stark contrast to probably what you share. Sure. And I mean, if it's a person of color, they would have a different experience as well. Um, but I, on top of that, also have a chronic illness. Mm-hmm. And it is disabling. Mm-hmm. And um, so it is very difficult to manage being a, a female academic yeah. as well as essentially having a disability. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a hard... It's a really hard line to walk. Um, I guess I would say being aware of um, your support structure, mm-hmm. uh, the people who love you, who really care about you. So um, my husband is a huge part of my life, and he was totally worth waiting for. <laughs> we got married when I was 30, and he was 36, and we neither one of us had been married or engaged before. And um, But he, our whole mantra, I guess, during our dating relationship was, are we, are we better together than we are apart? Are we doing more for God's kingdom together than we are apart? Because we're 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 okay on our own, so how are we together? Like when bring those two parts together, and the question, the answer was always we're better together. (laughs) So, and in a lot of ways, um, he he really um, has shown me what being known and being loved for who you are. Um, looks like. And I would probably go back to um, when we were, because when we were engaged. Um, so I personally, even from an, from a um, non-academic uh, perspective, I've had to work through a lot of things um, myself. And when we first were were dating, I knew that I would have to share with him that I had been sexually assaulted. Mm. And that was a hard, hard conversation. Because at that time, I still thought it had been my fault. Mm. And he was the first person to tell me, it's not your And just the outpouring of love that I felt in that moment was so restorative and so healing. And being able to, even being able to say that now in public is just evidence of the growth that can happen when you have love in your life. And it doesn't have to be a romantic love. It could be a family member. It could be a friend, um, someone. But really being able to share yourself with somebody um, and just seeing what happens Mm -hmm. can in itself be such a healing process. Yeah. So. Bobby, do you have anything to share? Well, first of all, I want to say that – 
I'm going to go back to my years of working in domestic violence, mm-hmm. sexual violence. Um, I had a really good client for many years, Safe Harbor. And one of the things I think coming off that conversation that I've had to learn over the years, especially raising a daughter before I had raised boys, was to understand and to accept the national statistics that men are perpetrators. Uh, We men are called to call out other men, and we men are called to call out ourselves, to keep ourselves in check. And so with that said, it's being a professor on a college campus is a space at which that we as male figures um, have a higher standard at which we must hold ourselves. Number one, we have to understand that the doors should always stay open. We always put ourselves on the curb as opposed to above and learning to sit on the curb. I read a very, very good book a few years ago that is basically a book about how the mainline church is trying to figure out who they are and where they're going to go. And a part of it was the research to understand the new next wave of church congregants. Mm. And a part of that is the aspect of empathy and what does it mean to sit on the curb, to sit beside someone and to listen to their story. Mm. And as a storyteller, we do better jobs listening than talking. And so how can we be powerful listeners? And so when I sit here and listen to your stories, the sad part about it is I hate to say, but that y'all's stories is so, it's so prevalent in this mm-hmm. world. And so there needs to be larger platforms to tell that story because it gives other women and even men the confidence and the strength to know that not only they are not alone, but the voice is just as powerful in a collective universe as opposed to a singular universe. And so it's our jobs as people that help individuals maturate, to grow, to find themselves, to get out into the world and find their space, is to empower them to be better than they came in, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And so when I think about what does it mean to operate inside of an organization, especially a faith-based organization, and it's a lot more challenges in a public institution, is that what is my role on campus? Let's, let's just break it down, very basic. My role is not to be an administrator. My role is not to be a counselor. My role is to be a teacher. My job, as I am paid to do, is to step on that campus and make sure that every student that walks through my classroom has a is empowered to take on that topic outside. Mm-hmm. And then my, my next role is to basically be a, a parent. I'm supposed to shepherd. Mm-hmm. I'm shepherding people. You know, if I wanted to go to a large 50,000-person institution to teach, then we'd have a little bit different goals and assets and all these things that we think through. Mm-hmm. But my job at the end of the day is to shepherd, to teach and shepherd. And so with that said, I walk on campus every day with a focus. I have to. I run a business I teach full-time, I sit on these boards, I have a family, we do all these things. So I walk on campus with a focus. My job is to teach. Mm -hmm. My job isn't to do everybody else's job. My job is to teach. And that I'm going to draw boundaries around that and protect that role. 
because at the end of the day, my job is to protect my students. And I think that's really important for us as individuals that as we are trying to help students move through that process is that we be committed to the student 100%. And that's how I kind of look at it, mm-hmm. is that's how we help better students, is empower them to understand our door is always going to be open, mm-hmm. you know? That's good. So my next question is, um, how has therapy played a part in um, moments where you felt supported um, and standing up for your needs in just the workplace or in life? Well, it's funny that you asked that question (laughs) because yesterday I had my therapy session right after having an hour and a half long meeting with my boss. So, wow. <laughs> um, and the meeting, the meeting was, you know, it was fine. It was, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's all, we checked off a couple boxes, things that we needed to take care of, but um, it, it, I was very grateful that I had, I was speeding my way in my van, my mom van <laughs> over to the therapy <laughs> right after. Um, I would say that as I, as I think back about my own experience, um, I had some not so helpful experiences too. And I think it's really important for, um, people, students to find a therapist who is two things. Number one, they're professional. So they have certain boundaries. Um, they're careful with, Sure, keeping the window in the door or things like that, but also just realizing what their role is um, and that they've also been trained to do what they're doing, mm-hmm. right? So, but so professional, being professional, but also um, just being a good personality fit. Yeah. So, um, it, in the past, I had a, a situation where um, a person was very well-meaning, and it was at a church, but she didn't have the type of training that was necessary to uh, deal with my certain situation, and unfortunately, she did really more damage than she helped, and I'm afraid that so often in Christian circles, we have that happen a lot, um, especially because we're afraid to actually say um, that help might be needed outside of the church. Amen. Right? (laughs) So, because if you have a situation where someone's been trained or they might have certain techniques that can be helpful or be able to see certain warning signs that might be needed for medication. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're accountable for their actions. They're right. licensed. Yes. Yes. So you have some kind of uh, recourse if needed, right? So one of the most transformative um, therapists that I had, she was actually trained in EDMR. And EDMR is has to do with rapid eye movement. Yep. And I actually heard about it from a student of mine at AU. Um, he was... Uh, highway patrolman and he had a really bad Mm. situation Mm -hmm. and it had 
he ha- had a really difficult time with it, overcoming it, and he had some EDMR counseling. And so I thought, hmm, I'm going to try to see if I can investigate this. Um, and the woman was actually able, and it sounds like a whole bunch of hoodoo. <laughs> I was really skeptical. I promise it's not. <laughs> it's not. As someone who's had EMDR, mm-hmm. it's not a bunch of, it's not, it's so helpful. It is. It's pretty amazing because it, it helps the person work through trauma by rewiring their brain. So it gives a different physical stimulus so that your body doesn't react in the same pattern, in the same way, yes. um, with the same tape. Of course, I'm older than you, so I don't even know. Do you even know what tapes are? Yes, um, I do. Okay. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I would say that's been right. super helpful for me. That's great. And playing off what you're saying, <clears throat> first, uh, I want to, man, jump all over that because I 100% agree. Uh, I'm sitting here thinking about a situation where I watched happen, where a church pastor um, proceeded to sit at a table dinner and talk about the individuals that they're counseling inside. And we all know that that, number one, there's a lot of privacy issues related to that. And a professional counselor that is licensed understands that not only do you not talk about it, it is against the law to do so. Mm -hmm. And so... If there's one thing that they actually don't even come up to you in public. That's right. right. So, so they just act like you're a stranger. Yes. Right? Which is pretty amazing. It yes. is very amazing. And with that said, I think, you know, you have to be able to hold these individuals to a certain standard because if we're going to trust mental health counseling, we have to know that we can trust them with our information. Yeah. It's the same thing as trusting a doctor with our, our personal medical information. Mm-hmm. And so I'm a big fan of counseling, have been. Um, my grandmother uh, committed suicide because she was mentally, she struggled. She was depressed. And because of that, my mom never really talks about mental health things. And I one day just realized I was screwed up in the head. I mean, it really was. I mean, I came from a divorced family. My mom, you know, all these things in our lives. And then I'm I married this wonderful woman that came from a really hard background religiously from religious trauma. Mm -hmm. And counseling was the thing that has helped us find a way to communicate and find a way to deal with our deep down traumas. And so the joy of that is that now we talk to our children about it. And I tell Henry George and Rose, going to a counselor is the same thing as going to a doctor. Mm -hmm. It is a disease or an issue of our body, mm-hmm. and we must take care of it, all of it. Yeah. And we must talk about all of it, and in a way that's healthy and not discriminatory. Mm-hmm. And so, Sarah, you know, and I still have our own counselors. It's it's very fruitful. It's great conversation. And also, not only from the rewiring standpoint, to me, and a person of that loves language that was... My master's degree was all about discourse communities and the language at which we interact. Mm-hmm. It is truly teaching ourselves to have language mm-hmm. and the space at which to have conversations that are healthy and productive and also draws boundaries. And mm-hmm. I think that's what therapy has done for me is to ta- teach me what are my boundaries? What are the spaces that I must protect? 
and that I am validated to have those emotions and feelings, and then also how to learn how to express them in a way that engages people in the proper way. Yeah. And that has been a powerful place for me at 48 that's taken me 48 years to get to. And, and so if you want to lay that out in like a Christian walk, you know, mm-hmm. you know, I, I grew up in the church. I'm a heretic. I'm the guy that rips everything apart. I think dogmas are awesome and hilarious. I love making fun of the Catholic church. I love making fun of my Baptist church. It's just who I am and it's fun. So should I tell him now or later I'm Anglican? Oh, even better. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> but what I love about it is that I love that my Christian walk is also my mental health walk. Too. Mm-hmm. It is ups and downs. There's peaks and valleys. And it, it's just because the flavor of the month doesn't make me happy doesn't mean that I should lose faith and lose sight of my mental health. And mm-hmm. that it is a, it's a part of that natural rhythm. And so that has been the joy to come to the place in my life that I realize those rhythms, that they are rhythms. And that we must be honest and true to those rhythms, yeah. which is great for me. I agree. I firmly, like, I can affirm everything that you are saying. <laughs> it is so great. Um, I have two more questions left for y'all. Uh, the first one is, how can therapy help a client differentiate between a healthy workplace and a toxic workplace? Stay tuned for more in the next episode, where Grace Ann continues this discussion with Bobby and Dr. Wema.